Hi, this is Pastor Andrew here at Oak Ridge Baptist Church in San Antonio, Texas. If you'd like to learn more about us, you can check us out online at www.orbcnet.com. Or better yet, come by and visit us at the corner of Wurzbach and Vance Jackson in Northwest San Antonio. Um, it's one of those things that can become very, very um, transformative to you early in life. Um, I... Uh, encountered probably one of the best leaders that I've ever seen when I was in college. I was in ROTC at Texas A&M, and we had one of our, uh, one of our instructors was a, a guy named Major Smith, um, and they called him Captain America because he was tall and broad and just amazing at everything. He could run from ever and not stop. Uh, he didn't sleep ever. Like, he was just amazing. His hair was always perfect. Um, and he was just a, just a cold, I mean, in the Marine Corps, this is a good thing. He was a cold-eyed killer. I mean, he was just awesome. In the Marine Corps, that's a good thing. In civilian life, it's not. And, and I remember this guy, and we would go out in the field and do field stuff with him, and I remember they would bring food out to us, and he would always eat last. He would serve all the guys going through the line, and he would eat last. And I thought to myself, when I'm, when I'm a Marine officer, when I'm a leader, I'm going to be just like him. Because he would always like, you know, now I wasn't, I wasn't super tall, I didn't have perfect hair, um, you know, but I was like, I'm going to eat last, I'm going to serve my guys, and, then I'll, and I'll, then I'll eat. And I didn't realize until I actually started doing that, what a sacrifice that is. See, when you have 18-year-old Marines, and they're going through the chow line, they're not, they're not conservative about how much food they take. Right? And so you get like 200 guys that have to go through a line. Two things happen. All the food disappears, and what food is left gets cold. Okay? And so the first time I did it, I was like, I'm being Major Smith. This is amazing. And then I realized all that's left for me is cold corn and the scrapings at the bottom of the butterscotch pudding can. Bon appetit. <laughs> I was trying to be a leader, and leadership is about service. It's about putting other people ahead of yourself for the purposes of your mission. Major Smith did that. I tried to do that. And this morning, we're going to see what leadership looked like in the early church. We've been going through the book of Acts, and we've been watching as this church has gone from success to success, as it has grown from a very small group of people now to thousands upon thousands. In the last week, uh, we looked at how the disciples underwent a really kind of harrowing experience. They were brought before the Sanhedrin, and they were beaten for the name of Jesus, and they left rejoicing. And in the very next chapter, we read these words. Now, in these days when the disciples were increasing in numbers... Right, and that's the, that's the dream, right? That's the dream for every church. I, I don't care who it is or how humble they seem, the dream of every church is to be increasing in numbers. Okay? Every pastor looking out at the congregation, it's never full enough. We want to see more people coming. We want to see more people coming to Christ. We want to see the baptism just overflowing and just, just all the time. And this is happening, right? The church has gotten the Great Commission. They're going into the nations. They're making disciples. Uh, they've had Pentecost. The Holy Spirit has fallen on them. And they're just going from success to success. And yet, in the midst of this success, we begin to see problems coming. We've just seen the problem 
of external oppression. But what we're going to see now is kind of the flip side of that. We're going to see the problem of internal friction. Okay, now... When we were taking uh, uh, science of warfare classes, uh, one of the things that they talked about was friction was that force that makes the seemingly most simple tasks impossible. Right? And friction builds up within the mechanism and makes things harder and harder. The growth in the church is causing friction, and friction left unaddressed leads to conflict. And so we read in, in the second part of verse 1, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Now that is half of a sentence that is deeply pregnant with meaning. With, within that half of a sentence is days and weeks of heartache. Huge amounts of stress and pressure that's radiating throughout this church and is beginning to lap against the leadership in the church. See, the early church was successful. It had done everything that Jesus had told them to do. It was diverse. There's people from all over the Roman world there. It was dynamic and caring. They were coming together to care for one another, and, and, and it was a community of people, right? These weren't people that just showed up on Sunday to kind of hang out for an hour and then leave. These are people that were building their lives together day in and day out. And what we see from this is that even when we're doing things exactly the right way, problems begin to arise. Right? Community, right? The thing that we talk about more than anything, we want to have community, that's the big buzzword now in church. We've got to have community, meaningful, transparent community. Well, community is great, but community causes friction. Anybody who's ever had a next-door neighbor knows that community leads to friction. Anybody that's ever been a member of a family knows that community leads to friction because the goal of community is to know another person. Right, to, to understand who they are, to really get to know them, to live life with them. And what you realize when you know somebody and live life with them is that sometimes, often, you don't really like them. Right? We, we've all probably experienced this, those of us that have been married. Right? You, you date, which is basically lying to another person for a long period of time, like, I am, I am this amazing person. Right? I, I, I always clean myself I always brush my teeth and, you know, never leave my clothes on the floor because I'm dating and I really, really want to have a closer relationship with you, so I'm going to tell you lies about myself and pretend to be somebody I'm not. Now, other people would look at that as like studying or trying, but it's really kind of lying. And when you get married, all the lies go away. And people see you for who you are and people are like, oh, he changed. No, he didn't change. That's who he always was. Ask his mom. She knows who he is, and now you know who he is. And legally, you have to stay with him. Right? And so we develop community in marriage, and it becomes really difficult because when you're around somebody 24 hours a day, it's really, really hard. The 400th time you've picked their socks up off the floor. The 5,000th time they've used your towel. And by they, I mean me. 
when you weren't supposed to. It's the only amen I've ever gotten from her, by the way. <laughs> and, and, and so community builds friction as we do life together, inevitably. And yet, this friction, if it's unaddressed, can lead to deeper conflicts. As we come into contact with one another, and we come into conflict with one another, and these conflicts begin to grow, you can forbear for a little while, right? The first time, the second time, the third time, you replace an empty toilet paper roll. The 500th time, something inside you breaks, and you go berserk. Well, that happened within the church. Because the church was not just a group of people that were in community with each other. They were a community that cared deeply for its its more vulnerable members, right? They took care of each other. They took seriously the biblical injunctions to care for the marginal, the poor, and the sick. Right? All throughout the Old Testament, we have this very clear picture of the responsibility of God's community towards those that are vulnerable. They're supposed to care for the widows and the orphans. This is important because widows and orphans in the ancient world had literally nobody. If your husband wasn't rich and didn't have a lot of money and he died, all the property went to the eldest son. And if you had been nice to him growing up, maybe he takes care of you. Oftentimes, though, if you were just a laborer, you were broke, and you were, you were relying on the people around you to take care of you. This is why the book of Ruth is so dramatic when this woman goes back to her people. She literally has nothing. She says, I, I, am, I am so broken, my life has gone from, from really great to now I am, I am the, the soul of sadness and woe. And so the, 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 the ancient world and uh, the, the Jewish people had this ethic that had been drilled into them that you care for the widows, orphans, and sojourners. You care for those people because they can't care for themselves. And if you're going to be God's people, you're going to do that. At one point in Exodus, he says, you shall not wrong a sojourner, that's an immigrant, or oppress him, for you were immigrants in the land of Egypt. This is in Exodus 22, verse 21 through 24. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. Right? And he, here's the catch. Here's what happens if you do. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn and I will kill you. That's God speaking. This is the God who just parted the Red Sea. This is the God who led them by a pillar of smoke and a pillar of fire. This is the God who destroyed the entire Egyptian army saying, if you mistreat these people, if you don't take care of them, I will kill you. And your wives shall become widows and your children shall become fatherless. He's saying, if you don't take care of the widows and the orphans, I will make your wives widows and I'll make your children orphans. That's how serious I'm about it. Right? And so as we move into the New Testament period, Jesus begins to say the same kinds of things. He he pays special attentions to widows. He tells his church that they need to care for the poor. And the church got it. Right? The church internalized this. And and we've read about recently how the church sold the possessions of the people and they they gave it to the poor and they took care of people based based on the, the, the people giving up their own things to do that. Like these were people that were sold out on caring for the poor 
and the widows and the sojourners. Later on, James, who will rise to leadership of the Jerusalem church, will describe the care of widows and orphans as being a key sign of true religion. He said, if you want to be truly religious, you want to really be a Christian, you want to to know what that looks like, it looks like caring for widows and orphans. And so they're doing exactly what they're supposed to do. And even though they're doing exactly what they're supposed to do, it imposes friction. When we do this kind of work, mistakes get made. Caring for people, and I want you to hear me, caring for people is risky. We take a risk every time we care for somebody. We expose ourselves. Things can go wrong. You can make a mistake. And listen, people that are in extreme situations, people that are extremely vulnerable, can lash out. Even at the people that are trying to help them. Anybody who has been with us on Sunday when we go down under the bridge to feed the homeless knows what this looks like. Okay, we have spent literally all day Saturday preparing food. We've put it together. We're going down there under the bridge. And things happen. Either one side, one group of people over here gets more food than they should have, and this group over here doesn't get as much food as they thought that they should, and people start to get angry, or we don't have enough water, or something happens, and invariably, these people who are very stressed and incredibly distraught, they they can become upset. Maybe this is just the, the 50th time that they've had sausage and barbecue sauce, and they're just done. They don't want to have sausage and barbecue sauce anymore, and that's what we're bringing, and they're just like, ah! When we care for people, it adds complexity, and complexity makes friction even harder. And so this church that is living in community with each other is now caring for the people within that community, and that care has in- induced some complexity, and that complexity is creating friction in the body. Again, not doing anything wrong, but they still have a problem. The final component in the controversy, though, is diversity. People from different backgrounds, speaking different languages, from different racial groups, are all within this community that's caring for each other, that is enduring friction. We read that there's two groups of people specifically that are being dealt with. There's the the Hebraic Jews and the Hellenistic Jews. The Hebraic Jews, pretty easy. That's the group of people that live in Palestine. Okay, They speak Aramaic. They are... Uh, probably racially Jewish. You can kind of see they all kind of look the same. They have the same culture. They come from the same place. They're the Hebraic Jews. They're the, the people that live in and around Jerusalem and Judea and, some, and, and up even into Bethlehem. But then there's another group of people. There's the Hellenistic Jews. Now, these are the Jewish people that have been scattered throughout the Mediterranean world. They look different. They speak Greek instead of Aramaic. They have different cultural values. They eat different kinds of food. They probably smell different. And so there's this difference there. And even in the most well-meaning people, differences in culture and diet and language cause friction. 
I, I can remember one, uh, one summer, actually it was, it was one fall, I was in college, and I started going to a predominantly African-American church. So I went to uh, Mount Carmel Baptist Church in uh, Bryan, Texas on Martin Luther King Drive. I went there. Uh, I, I was trying to date somebody that was going to that church. That's not why you should go, but I, that's what I was doing. And I can remember there was, the people were incredibly welcoming to me. It was an incredibly, uh, really awesome experience. They did worship for like five hours. So for those of you who get tired after an hour in here, I'm just, just letting you know that they would have just been warming up. So, but even with that, there was friction that was caused by differences in culture and differences in diet, differences in the things that we cared about. See, diversity is something that God wants us to have within the church, right? We are to love. We are to become the people drawn from every tribe and tongue and nation that are worshiping before God. That is the goal of what heaven is supposed to look like, right? So they're doing exactly what they're supposed to be doing, right? There's neither slave nor free. There is not Greek or Jew, and yet they're all together. And yet that diversity is causing friction. Right, so we have all this different friction that's beginning to build within the early church, and this friction has led to a conflict, and this conflict has led to a complaint. Now, I know that complaints are alien to us here at Oak Ridge. I know that it's not something that we deal with at all, but I want you to take yourself back to a different time in the early church where people in the church complained. Again, I know that that's a stretch. Some of the widows felt like they were receiving less food than other widows, and this disparity was interpreted along cultural lines. They said, well, the Hebraic Jewish um, widows are receiving more food. It must be because they're the Hebraic widows and you're discriminating against the Greek widows and that's not cool because I thought we were all supposed to be in this together. This led to grumbling as people began to talk to one another. They began to gossip. Again, I know this is an alien concept in the church, but back then people within the church would gossip and would complain to each other. And finally, those Grumbling complaints were laid at the feet of the disciples. Now, I need you to understand this. Nothing up to this point has been bad. Okay? The church has been doing everything that it was supposed to be doing, and yet they still have a problem that they have to deal with. And it is the way that they deal with this problem that's going to be the difference between conflict, something that just there's a conflict in the church, and a crisis, something that's going to destroy and tear the church down. See, friction is a natural part of a healthy, growing church, but it must be managed in order to prevent conflict from turning into crisis. So how did the disciples manage this conflict and keep it from turning into crisis? Well, we, we see this in, in verse 2 and, and 3. It says, "...in the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples." Now, when he says that, he's talking about everybody, everybody, the whole shooting match, thousands of people, 
right? So he brought, they brought all of them together. Those of you who don't like church business meetings, it was a great big church business meeting. <laughs> Hooray! They get to worship God through the administration of the church. They bring all these folks together, right? And the disciples get up and they start preaching. They start instructing them on what is good and what is not good. He said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. I want, I want to stop that for just a minute there, and I want you to want to look at that. So here you have the apostles, these men that have been chosen, have been specially instructed by God. They're standing up there in front of all of the people, and they're saying, hey, look, we get that there's a problem. But we don't have the bandwidth right now to deal with this problem. Because if we did, we would have to stop doing these other things that God has called on us to do. Preaching the word, praying, planting churches, being beaten in the Sanhedrin, that takes a lot of time. So somebody else is going to have to do this. Right? Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and wisdom, who will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. See, the disciples dealt with the issue through delegation. And delegation is hard. Anybody who's ever been in a position of, of, of leadership or has been doing something real knows that delegation is something that sounds easy, but it's incredibly hard. It's way easier to do something yourself than it is to teach somebody else how to do it because they will never do it right. This morning, I go into the kitchen. Now, I'm not saying that I know everything in the kitchen, but I'm saying that I know the right way to do things in the kitchen. If somebody knows how to make bacon in our family, it's me. You do not put bacon in the oven. You do not put bacon in the microwave. You do not pour a bunch of bacon in a pot and stir it around like it's soup. You use the appropriate tool, which is a griddle. That's the tool that God gave us to make bacon. <laughs> this is real. This is science. Okay? And so I went into the kitchen, and I was allowing my brother-in-law and my wife to make bacon. And it was really hard for me because I had to release control and provide constructive criticism from the other side of, the, of, our, of our little bar there. Now, I, I was on the other side of the bar, so they couldn't actually get to me because that's how constructive criticism works. A delegation is incredibly hard. It's way harder to tell somebody how to do something and then hold them accountable for it. And yet the disciples were able to do this. They were able to prioritize and delegate they were able to say that we can't do the important things because we have to do the critical things. There are things that have to happen in order for the organization to function. We have to do those things. So these other important things are going to have to be done by somebody else. One of the hardest parts about being a leader is determining the difference between important and essential. There's a thousand important things here. I, I get... I get thousands of important decisions that are brought to my desk on a monthly basis. There are things like, hey, which card do we need to give to the people that are going to be baptized? This is important. It's an important decision that needs to be made. Okay? Because we're serious about people that get baptized. But it's not essential. 
right? The, the, the color of the juice that we're going to be serving on Wednesday night is important because if you give my child red drink, he's going to lose his mind, but it's not essential to the functioning of the church. And so we begin to delegate some of these processes down. So they decided to empower qualified men for service in the church. They didn't just pick anybody. They didn't say, hey, uh, you seem like an interesting person. Why don't you be involved in this incredibly important thing? They said, hey, let's as a church come together and be discerning and find the people that God is raising up to be able to do this. Most importantly, though, they worked through the congregation of the local church. This is the first example of, of, in the New Testament of a principle that we call congregationalism. Okay? Here's what congregationalism means. God vests the responsibility of church in its members. Each member of this church is a priest before God. That's what we mean by the priesthood of all believers. That's what it means to be Baptist. Okay? It means that you are directly in contact with God. The Holy Spirit lives within you, in a little temple inside of you. You offer sacrifices on a daily basis by doing things that you don't want to do. That's what it means to be a member of a church and to be a Christian. Each of you is a little priest that's doing little sacrifices in your life on a daily basis, and then together everybody makes up the church. God vests responsibility for the church in its members. Now, I want you to understand what this does not mean. This does not mean that the church is a democracy. Okay? The church is not a democracy. A democracy means that the people rule. People do not rule the church. Who rules the church? God. Let's say that again. Who rules the church? Do I rule the church? Do you rule the church? Does God rule the church? Yes, God rules the church. So in that, we're kind of a dictatorship, except our dictator is God, and he's really cool with being a dictator, and it's okay. Okay? We are the subjects of the best king who ever lived. As Americans, that's hard. The challenge is trying to figure out what our king wants us to do. And this is where democracy comes in, and this is where leadership comes in. We have these kind of twin themes throughout Scripture. We have people coming together responsible before God for the things that happen in the church, right? Every single person here, every single one of you that is a member of this church is responsible for the things that happen here. It's a heavy burden. You have to bear it. That means that if I come up here and I preach heresy to you and you don't remove me, you bear responsibility. That's the flip side of priesthood of the believers is you're responsible before God. And so we have the responsibility of the congregation, right, for the things that happen or fail to happen here. But then we also have on the other side godly men raised up to guide God's people in a godly way. To help to interpret Scripture and help the people understand what Scripture means so that they can make good and godly decisions. That's what congregationalism is. And so in this first crisis within the church, 
The apostles who mediate the word of God, they're inspired by God. They have stood under the preaching of Jesus. They understand how things are supposed to work. They come to the people and say, hey, guess what? This is how this is going to go. You guys need to select some good and godly people that are going to take care of this task. And you know what's amazing? It actually worked. Right? They, they did this, and it worked. The church in Jerusalem found itself in the middle of its first real crisis, and the way that we deal with crisis dictates whether that crisis turns into, I'm sorry, they dealt with a conflict, and the way that they dealt with it dictated whether it was going to turn into a crisis, and it didn't turn into a crisis. The congregation responded to the leadership of the disciples and chose qualified men to serve as the first deacons. He said, and what they said pleased the whole gathering. The apostles got up there and said, hey, you need to do this. The people were like, hmm, that seems like a good idea. We should totally do that. And they did it. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenius, and Nicolaus, and a a proselyte from Antioch. They brought all these guys together. They voted on them, said, hey, these are the people that we think should be here. And they selected them. They identified seven spirit-filled men, and oh, the men that they chose. Each of these men went on to do amazing, tremendous things in the kingdom. Stephen will be the first martyr. He will stand in, actually the next story that we read is going to be about Stephen. And so for those of you who have ever thought about being a deacon, just understand that this can happen. They raise him up to be a deacon. The very next thing that happens is he goes before the Sanhedrin and they stone him to death. That's probably not what's going to happen to you. Please continue to come to deacons meetings, but just realize that when you step out in faith and take on leadership in the church, that can happen. And so Stephen is going to stand before the Sanhedrin He's going to preach truth to them, and they're going to kill him with stones. Philip will go on to become a great missionary. Prochorus will serve as the Apostle John's personal secretary and write the fourth gospel. Later, he's going to become a leader of the church in Nicomedia and Bithynia, and ultimately he will be martyred in Antioch. Nicholas, the Greek convert, will go on to serve as the leader of many churches. See, the the crisis was averted, unity was preserved, the church continued to grow because they dealt with conflict in a healthy way. The apostles dealt with the conflict of leadership in the early church through biblical leadership, godly deacons, and an an engaged church. And they took conflict and prevented a crisis. And, And I need you to understand this, guys. Things have not changed in the church. We still deal with, cri- with conflict. We still deal with friction. I know that sounds weird to some of you guys, right? Friction in the church, what? We do. We deal with friction. That friction leads to conflict. And dealing with that conflict in healthy ways is what determines whether or not we fall into crisis or whether we rise above that, cri- that conflict new growth. A healthy church deals with conflict in the same way that the early church did, through biblical leadership, godly deacons, and an engaged congregation. So what does biblical leadership look like? 
Well, first thing is biblical leadership is open to criticism. Biblical leadership is open to criticism. Criticism and complaints are not a bad thing. I want you to be careful with me saying that, okay? Some of you guys think that that's your spiritual gift. But criticism is not always a bad thing. Now, complainers aren't a good thing. There's some folks that that's what they feel like they should be doing. They're going to complain all the time about everything, okay? And sometimes people, oftentimes the people that do the most complaining are the ones that do the least actual work, okay? That's not what we're talking about. But what we are talking about is the fact that people often complain because they can see issues more clearly than the people that are in leadership. Sometimes when you're really close to a problem, you don't see it. And it takes somebody on the outside saying, hey, uh, we, we probably need to deal with this because it's an issue. Okay, and so part of biblical leadership is saying, yeah, it looks like we got an issue. We probably need to deal with it, right? Biblical leadership is responsive to criticism, and it's also transparent. So not only do we listen to complaints and deal with them, but we listen to complaints and we deal with them in a way that doesn't sweep those issues underneath the rug. Right, so people came to the early disciples and they said, or to the apostles and said, hey, the, we think that the, the, that the, uh, the Greek-speaking Jews are, are kind of getting cheated and they're not getting the same kind of uh, food that the, that the other group is. And, and what we don't say is we don't say, oh, ooh, that's, a, that's an issue. We need to not talk about it. We'll just sweep it under the rug and nobody will talk about it. We'll just pretend like it's not there. Hey, don't look at this. You go look over there. That's not biblical leadership. That's knee-jerk crisis management, and it never works because these issues always blow up. See, biblical leadership is responsive to criticism, it's transparent, and it's sensitive to the concerns of people different from themselves. The things that you care about are not always the things that other people care about, and the things that other people care about are not less than the things that you care about. So biblical le church leadership will look at that and say, hey, I don't understand your concern, but, but I'm going to give it some credence. One of the best examples that, that I see of that is racism. Is he going to talk about that? Yeah. I'm going to talk about that. I had the opportunity to go to Africa with a group of African-American pastors. And it was probably one of the most transformational moments in ministry for me. Because I got to have some really honest conversations with African-American pastors about racism within the church. And I realized that even if I don't agree with them about specific issues, as brothers in Christ, it's my responsibility to listen to them. Right? Trauma has occurred within that community. And if we love them, we will let them work out that, that trauma. Best example of that is uh, my wife and I dated for a long period of time in college. At one point... I dated my wife's roommate. This was dumb. Like in case anybody's wondering if dating your wife's roommate is a good idea, that's a bad idea. And I paid for it like forever. Okay? At no time was I able to say, you need to get over that. I know I broke up with you and dated your roommate, but come on. I'm not dating her now. She had... She had trauma, and I had to be sensitive to that trauma. For us to have a relationship, I had to show her that I cared about that. And so part of biblical leadership is dealing with things that you don't understand. 
pain and suffering that doesn't make sense to you. Biblical leadership is worked out within the context of the local church. See, the congregation was involved in fixing the problem, and they work within the theological framework created by the disciples. Now, we don't have the apostles here, right? I, I want you to hear me. I am not the apostle. I'm not the bishop of this church. I do not have a personal private line to God. If I ever start making things up, like, oh, well, God told me y'all need to give me a raise. God told me that if, if I have a bigger plane, I can go spread the gospel better. Right? You need to distance yourself from me. What I have is God's word. And my job is to help you understand what God's word says so that you can apply it to the issues in your life and in the church. Right? This is why the main job of a pastor is to accurately and effectively teach the word of God and good doctrine. And the congregation's job is to be open to teaching. Right? So when I stand in front of you and I teach and reprove and correct and I train in righteousness using scripture and I, and I offend you, which I will, if you haven't been offended yet, just wait because I will offend you, it's to be open to that and to respond to it in a loving, open, Christ-like way. The congregation was focused on this and was focused on harmony in the church. Finally, the church deals with conflict through godly deacons, right? So you have biblical leadership, you have an engaged congregation, and then you have men that have been raised up in the church that are serving as the shock absorbers within that church, that are listening to those complaints, that are processing those issues. So it's why it's really important that we select good people to be deacons. And it's why it's really important that if you are a godly man, you respond to the call to serve this church as a deacon because we need you. We need men to stand in the gap and to lead this church as we move forward. Brothers and sisters, friction is going to happen here. The more new people we bring in, the more community we develop, the more we grow, the more we are going to have friction. That friction will grow into conflict. And how we deal with conflict is going to determine whether we fall into crisis or we have opportunities to grow. The only way we're going to be able to do that is if we have people step up to serve in positions of godly leadership here. Today after church, we're going to have a deacon's meeting. If you are a deacon, please stay for that. If you are one of our young men who we've, been, who we've identified as yoke fellows, please, please stay for that. If you have been approached by Robert or myself to, to maybe think about maybe becoming a yoke fellow, please do that. Think about becoming a yoke fellow. Think about joining the men of this church to lead this church, to serve as the shock absorbers of this church to deal with the friction and the conflict in this church. Because if we do, then we will be able to move through conflict, past crisis, and into periods of growth like we see in the New Testament. In a moment, we're going to have a time of invitation. If you have never made a profession of faith in Christ, 
I would ask that you would come forward. We had a baptism this morning, and during our baptism, we described what it looks like when somebody dies to themselves and is born to new life. We believe that nobody comes to God unless they come through Jesus Christ. And to come to Jesus Christ, you must die to yourself. You must make a decision that, that you are willing to no longer be in control of your life. Then you're willing to let Jesus be the Lord of your life. And so if you would like to have a closer relationship to God, if you would like to understand what this means, I'd ask you to come forward during a time of invitation. We have deacons here that will take you aside, will talk to you, and will help you pray through that decision. Maybe you, you've accepted Christ and you've been a Christian for a while, but you don't have a church home. During our time of invitation, I would invite you to come forward. This is the time when we, when, when we bring people and, and we talk to them about what it means to be a member of this church. We'd love for you to come and talk to one of our deacons about what that looks like. Maybe you're already a member of this church or you're a member of another church and you just need some prayer. Things in your life have not been working out. Things are going wrong. I'd ask you to come forward and talk to one of our deacons. They can pray for you wherever you are. Regardless of what your reason is, I'd invite you to come forward during our, our song of invitation and give yourself to the process of redemption. At this time, though, I'd ask you to please rise as I close us in prayer. Thanks for listening to this sermon, part of the teaching ministry at Oak Ridge Baptist Church. If you'd like more information about Oak Ridge, you can go to www.orbcnet.com.